Welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Chris Bouquet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm fantastic. So happy to be here. Hey, Rachel, where's Lucas? I know. Where is that? Where is that guy? He's in Pennsylvania doing lots of work for, for Toby. So um, we definitely miss him. I feel like we've had a few recordings now without Lucas and it feels empty. Yeah, maybe he's just hiding in his closet. You know how we do that with our recording. <laughs> I know. I still need to make some room in my closet so I can not feel so left out. Maybe he's just swamped with like back to school stuff, you know? It's true. It's that time of year, back to school. And I've been thinking a lot about, it's a really nice transition when kids go back to school because it feels like a fresh start. And I love the idea of taking the momentum that we have from the summer and being refreshed and relaxed and really running with that in the beginning of the school year. And what I thought we could talk about a little bit today is how can we keep that momentum high? Um, and I think it starts by believing that kids are capable and believing that no matter what the cognitive functioning is, um, we should never limit a child's abilities and communication just because of what a test score says or, you know, what a teacher thinks. Um, I don't know, Chris, what's your, what's your, I mean, I know how you feel about this, uh, but I would love your, your ideas. I know you're in the school and you probably encounter this a lot. I'm in the school sometimes, but I know that you're, you're full-time in the schools. So Rachel, we have to tell the listeners, we swear we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I have to tell you, this is exactly what's been on my mind lately as we've gone back to school. So uh, recording this today, yesterday was the first day back for students, right? And I'm seeing on Twitter, all of these teachers and administrators posting all of this awesome optimism about the school year, right? And I'm thinking it to myself, where's that going to be in November? You know, how are they going to feel in December? But there's this such this feeling of how, like you said, people come back refreshed and they're just ready for it. And, uh, and in my particular uh, job and what I've been doing is, you know, traveling to many different schools, speaking to teachers as we kind of sort out where the new where a student is transferred from one school to another and one classroom to another. And so we're now trying to figure out where they are uh, and teach this, the, these new teachers about communication. And some what I hear is exactly what you're talking about in some, pl- in some places, you know, it's this, yeah, um, I don't know. I saw that device and I'm just not sure. It might be too complex. Do you have like a simpler device? And, and, you know, it's, I'm finding it less and less over the years that, that I'm hearing that, but it's still sort of a trend, this thought that, like, it's too complex and that we need to start simple, big, as opposed to start big and just believe that you can do the robust system, you know? Absolutely. This actually reminds me of an experience that I had. I was in Cambodia, I guess it was over a year ago now, and I was volunteering and they have a lot of AAC needs. There are a lot of nonverbal kids with autism and um, I was at a clinic in Phnom Penh. And so my role was to kind of teach the staff and teach the teachers and the parents about low-tech AAC. Um, And I remember the first day I came and I brought a, a communication board. And the first reaction, as soon as I pulled it out, was no way. There's just no way this kid's going to use this. No way at all. And I was really deflated. I was really excited. I got off my, you know... 20 hour plane journey there with my communication boards. And as soon as I pulled it out, everyone thought, no way. Sure enough, we started using it. I said, listen, just, let's just try it. Let's just try it. Well, you know, if it's not working fine, but you know, there's nothing to lose here. So this little boy was nonverbal and really interested. He's probably three or four years old. 
Um, he was really interested in pouring water. He loved water play. So he was pouring water into this bucket over and over again. And so I pulled out the board and I start modeling go. It's like, oh, ready, set, go. And he picked it up so quickly. He started imitating. He started pushing the button. Um, he started um, tapping the icon for go and looking at me. It was so wonderful. By the time I was done, I was in the cl- that classroom for 45 minutes. I walked over to the teacher and I was explaining you know, how can we start implementing these things in an everyday context and the routines you're already using? And he picks up the communication board, brings it over and starts hitting or touching the icon for go. And I was just blown away. The teacher was blown away. Everyone was like, I can't believe he was able to do that. And I just think it's such an important reminder that we can't assume that we know what a child's capable of. We can't limit them by what we think they might be able to do or they might not be able to do. We have to at least try and assume that they're capable of, of all the things, right? Yeah, you know, I say that to the teachers, right? If you believe they can't, then you'll be right, you know, exactly. because, you, uh, and that's not what you want to do. You know, you want to you fail by believing that the student can, you know, like, meaning if you're going to fail, believe, fail believing in them, you know, but we, this is something we've talked about many times in this podcast. So something that came to mind in that story that you were telling Rachel is Chris Klein. When we had the Chris Klein interview, something he said in that interview that still sticks with me is that people say to him, well, not everyone can be a Chris Klein, you know, and I bet there are people that saw the student that you were just talking about. And I know there are other students that I've worked with where they think it's unique to that student. Like, well, that student was able to do it, but that doesn't mean all these other students will be able to do it. And it's like, but how do you know? You know, you don't know. You got to give them a chance, you know? Uh, know, So something else I've heard, Rachel, uh, from from teachers is, let's create an imaginary situation so no one thinks, oh, this is, you know, if someone's listening that knows me, it goes, oh, this is uh, this particular school that Chris works in. Yeah. There's a school that's sort of... um, uh, lamp heavy. Okay, the, the the majority of students in that school, their AAC users, are using the lamp words for life system. There are definitely other systems in play, but that's the predominant one, right? And then um, the school that that one feeds into, so the middle school, that school is predominantly pro quo for whatever reason. Just the population is the, the however they they came from someplace else. They're the different you know speech therapists and IEP teams. For whatever reason, that group is using pro quo. And so the teachers in those cases, where once one student from the lamp school then goes to the pro quo school, the people in the pro quo school go, hey, before even maybe even seeing the students, they'll be like, can we switch the system? Can we switch the system? And I'm really torn on this subject. You know, I, I, the way I kind of skirt it is I say, well, it's an IEP team decision, right? But me personally, and it is, right? But like, how much does the environment play a factor into the system that you should be using? Right now, if a kid has been using a system for three years and they're, they're really working at it and doing, I don't know, I don't know what's doing well, I don't know. Um, you know, they're familiar with a system, then changing it seems like a crime. Now, on the other hand, if they're just starting and it's not going really well, but even then, why isn't it going well? Because they didn't have enough training. You know, I, I'm really torn. I don't know. What do you think? This is a really tough call. And it reminds me of the, the Eric Enger episode, specific language approach. And it's, it's really interesting because we always try to think about what device is perfect and what device, you know, fits the best and feature matching and device trialing. And what's really important is the implementation piece. 
It's we spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing assessment. And then it's like, okay, like, here you go, when it should be inverse. Um, so I would really encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode because I think it's, I mean, I feel like it's groundbreaking for our field. And I think that, that you know, it could potentially be a shift in the way we do things. Um, but it's, it's a struggle. It's, we know that it takes a long time for children to learn how to use these systems. So, and I experienced the same thing. It's like, it, it's been four months. Why is this not working? Um, and so I always say, you know, how much are you modeling? How much exposure is the child getting? How motivated are they? There's so many factors that go into whether a system works or doesn't work. Um, also, how are you viewing whether it's working or not working? Because I think that's part of it too, is that if we're taking data and you know, we're only counting certain responses as correct, but we might, you know, there might be a mishit and then it gets to correct, but we don't count that. You know, there's so many things at play that determine whether or not a, a child's being successful. Um, and I think it just depends on the teacher or the parent or what, what the viewpoint is and what perspective they're coming from. So I think there's just so many things at play and it really is kind of a case by case basis. Um, but I just really loved Eric's point of view with like, let's not focus so heavy on the system because a lot of these systems are robust and can do the things we need them to do. Um, what we really need is training. We need training for the, the circle of support and the, and the caregivers that are using these devices. Yeah. I think some of the feedback I gave to them when they were thinking about changing the system is, you know, do you, does the student have an established motor plan? If they do, if they're really, you know, know that system well and have established the motor plans, then don't change it up. I think that's another lesson from the Chris Klein interview, right? Is that don't keep switching the devices on the students. Just stick with it because that takes a long time. Like you said, four months, you mentioned four months, and that's really a drop in the bucket. Um, and then, like you said, how much are you actually modeling and using it? That is such a, uh, an important part, piece as well. Um, I know, I know there is no clear-cut answer. Unless someone has it, then please, you know, put it on the Facebook page and let us know what the answer is, you know. Because I think if people really believe in a particular system and they're using it and all of their supports support that system, then maybe that is the better system for a student, you know. If, if no one else is going to use it and they're not really buying into it, then that's not going to be the right system. So, ah, it's so tricky though, you know. It's, it's really tough. And, you know, you mentioned Chris Klein, and I think he's, he's inspirational, honestly. Um, I think we need more showcasing of what AAC looks like, you know, with adults, um, how successful it can be. Because I think that it's really hard for, for these teachers when they're kind of putting limits. Um, and, 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 and when I was a young clinician, I, I was putting limits too. Um, I think it's a natural thing. Um, so I think that that's a caveat, right? Like, you know, we've, we've all kind of been there. And I think you have to kind of come out the other side and be proven wrong so many times to be like, wow, like I, I didn't believe and look, um, I think that that's, I mean, at least in my journey and my experience. Um, but I think that we, we would be really, it would be really a great benefit to see what end users, quote unquote, end users look like and what it can look like. Um, so if anybody knows of anybody that we can bring on the podcast, I would just love to showcase more of that, um, to have more representations of what, you know, successful AAC looks like, because I think that it's hard for people to imagine if they've never seen it. 
Yeah. If, again, if you're listening to this and you know of somebody, of course, we'd love to talk to them, but even, even if they, we can't, or for whatever reason, we can't make it work, uh, we, we would love to, right? We'd definitely love to. So please put us in contact. See if you can get a video of them using and get their permission or ask them to, to post videos of themselves, uh, which is a stretch sometimes because I know, like, I know this one kid, for instance, that's 15 years old and a fantastic AAC user. You know, he's exactly the sort of kid that you want to um, showcase, you know, but he's a 15-year-old kid that likes playing Overwatch and collecting bobbleheads. Like, I don't want to put the pressure on him that, hey, dude, you got to change the world by me using you as an example. Do you know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he doesn't need that. You know? So uh, it's tricky to find somebody and, and respect that. You know, like Chris puts himself out there. So awesome. You know? But just because you speak with a communication device doesn't mean you're obligated to teach other people how to use your communication device. You know what I mean? Um, all right. So, Rachel, I have another question to, to throw at you because I know that you um, uh, work a lot with students with autism. I mean, I do too. But this is something that uh, I hear kind of... Um, Again, frequently from, from teachers, especially as I've been traveling around meeting new teachers and some of the new schools that I'm serving. So one thing they say is that, yeah, I know, Chris, you really like this core vocabulary, but kids, the kids I work with, they really need concrete objects. Like I, I want to start teaching the fringe, you know, and then maybe move to core, maybe, maybe. I just want to give them cookie and goldfish and the stuff they really like. Like this kid really likes his spinner toy, you know? So can I teach spinner toy, you know? I don't know. What do you think? Honestly, this, this is something that comes into my head and people tell these things to me all the time. Um, Cause we know that kids with autism and adults with autism, they're very concrete, literal thinkers. So of course they do better with fringe. Um, so what I would say is, and I've said this multiple times in the podcast, but introducing fringe to start, I think is a really great strategy for buy-in. And I think the most important thing when you introduce a communication system is helping children realize the power of communication and helping them buy into the system. They're like, yes, this is the thing that gets me all those spinner toys and that those sensory needs and all of those things. Um, so I think that fringe is really important. But then what I tell people is, try to make a sentence without nouns. It's just, you can't, you know? So there's a natural, you know, stopping point when you're only teaching noun vocabulary. And unfortunately, more abstract language is harder maybe for kids with autism to conceptualize. But if we don't try and we don't model, then we never have a hope of having them learn it. Um, and what, it need, what they need is continuous exposure. So we need to be modeling these concepts, even though they don't understand them yet, if they have so many experiences with motivating things paired with the core word, they will learn it. Um, you know, just because it doesn't happen immediately. And, and that's what I think is the problem is that we introduce fringe words and immediately we get an outcome, right? Kids understand it because it's a noun. It's super concrete. They're like, yes, like I get all the things that I need and, and they can use the system really quickly oftentimes. But then we kind of had this like screeching halt, like, well, they're not getting go and they're not understanding more or they're overgeneralizing it, which means that of course they don't, they don't understand it, which I find is not the case. Um, especially kids with autism, they are frequently perseverating on words. So they might, you know, have a word in their head that they're saying more and more and more, and maybe it's not in context, but I really do think that they're thinking of those words. Um, so there's kind of lots of things at play, especially for kids with autism, but, um, 
I just think that it's, it's a long game with core words, but we know that it's worthwhile because that's, what's going to give them the building blocks to formulate thoughts and sentences. And, and you can't make sentences with all nouns. You just can't. Yeah. You know, Rachel, I think this is something I've softened on over the years. So I think when I first started, and I don't think I'm alone here, when people were learning about core, when they first learned about core, they're like all core all the time, hundred percent. All I ever do is core. And, um, that really doesn't mimic uh, our typical language, right? It's the, that rule of 80-20, you know, 80% is core and 20% is fringe. And so maybe use that as your instructional model. Like, so 80% of the time I'm going to be using core and I'm going to focus on core, but 20% of the time I'm going to just play with the fringe as well. You know, and it's not like either or too, when you're maybe the lesson you're doing, imagine all the kids around, and you're doing a lesson on up and down, and now I'm standing up and now I'm going down, and I'm standing up and I'm going down. And occasionally you say, in the chair, you know, uh, uh, I, my feet go up, my feet go down, you know, because it's both, you know, it's not all or nothing. I couldn't agree more. And I think that where we get into trouble always across every discipline, across every subject is when we go to extremes. Um, so there's people on the extreme core where it's just like core, core, core. And it's like, okay, but fringe words have a purpose and you know, we need them. We use nouns. Um, and especially in the beginning, they're really motivating and concrete. So I agree. I think that we need to kind of mimic what you or I do and the 80, 20 rule feels really appropriate and perfect. Um, I think that it's, it's a balance. And also, you know, as a a speech therapist who specializes in the AAC, I can't go into a classroom and if they're only using nouns, it's kind of a slow integration. Like I have to get everybody to buy into this concept. Um, so I do it slowly. So it's like, okay, you know, before he gets up and, and goes to a different circle or center, have them say go. Um, you know, it's these things over time that make a big difference. Um, but it's, it's hard sometimes. And I think, I think the reason that I go into classrooms and I see so much noun usage and fringe words is because it's, it's easy, right? It's kind of hard initially to think outside of, of nouns, right? Because it's more abstract. Um, you kind of have to think outside the box. How can I use go in a variety of different ways? And that's why I love core word of the week, because it really forces you to think if you're focusing on one, one word, you're like, wow, how many times can I use this one specific word? So I think that that's a really effective strategy to kind of teach teachers and and paraprofessionals how to think outside of the box. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really tough. The core fringe word, I think that like everything else, we can kind of meet in the middle um, and, and do a little bit of both. And that's where the most success can be seen. Yeah. I'll take using fringe words over not using the device at all. Right. Exactly. Then you can maybe shape it into being like, okay, so you've, we've mastered where scissors is, but now we got to find, you know, where the word go and my turn and cut, you know, and of course you can always just be modeling that, you know? And, uh, when I say you, I mean, I really mean the speech therapist modeling for the the, the other communication partners in the room. Um, and then who can then model for the student. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's all good points. And it's just tough to keep remembering. And I, again, nothing new that we're covering here, but, um, uh, oh, I know one other thing I wanted to say that, that's, that I was, when I was listening to you, you said you got to have the, the, the nouns are part of what we say. And I, I always say that too, like, like you can't get to snug without the nouns, you know, you, 
You need the nouns. You can get close, but you can't get there without them. So you need some. So Rachel, we talked about a lot of different topics and so does Lucas in this upcoming interview. He talks to Betsy Furler and they kind of talk about all sorts of different stuff. I'm really excited to hear her. Actually, she has a book. It's called Talking with Tech. So I'm like, of course we have to have her on. So I'm really excited. I hope they cover it in the interview. I know. (laughs) So without further ado, here is Lucas's interview with Betsy Furler. Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Duber joined today by Betsy Furler. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. We're, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Um, there's, there's, you know, sometimes you do interviews where there's like one really clear uh, thing that I want to ask you about, but you are so prolific in your work that there's, there's actually a lot. I'm like, where do I start with, with all of this? So I guess that's the place to start is if you could just, I don't know, take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what brought you to do what you do today. Okay. So I've been a speech pathologist for 26 years. I went to grad school at UT Dallas Callier Center, became a speech pathologist. I actually had a class on augmentative communication back in 1990 or 91 and um, loved it and continued to do kind of a mix of augmentative communication, a lot of work in autism, feeding and oral motor stuff over the years. And I've worked with in every setting with every age. Is that one of the great things about this profession is you can never get bored, right? There's always you can do, and you can just keep specializing in different stuff as you want to learn. So, well, I guess when the iPod Touch came out is really when I started becoming enamored with technology. I really wasn't a technology person prior to that. I loved augmentative communication, but I wouldn't have called myself a techie. And when the iPod Touch came out, the minute I saw that first commercial, I thought this is going to be great for my adult patients who have had a stroke, who I need to figure out if they can use AAC. Because before then we had, you know, we had to borrow a device from usually Dynavox at the time. And then, you know, we might get a one month trial or whatever. And then we had to make a decision on buying that super expensive device. So I started using the iPod touch with my adult patients. So then the iPad came out. Of course, then that was like really the answer to all my prayers because all of a sudden I've got the touch screen and it's big. So I just started really using the iPad a lot in therapy. I'm a founding member of the organization called Bridging Apps. It was originally called Snaps for Kids, Special Needs Apps for Kids. My patient's mom started it, Kristen Reed. And I got really involved with that and using apps for people with all sorts of disabilities. And now is is bridging apps, is that, was that, or is it now also affiliated with Easter Seals? It is affiliated with Easter Seals, yes. So I got really involved in augmentative communication because I was all of a sudden just like obsessed with technology. I also got a very fortunate through just some people that I knew. I got asked to be on a panel at South by Southwest and... That was on apps for autism. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, because that's a huge exposure for our profession, even to be in South by Southwest. That was a a a great moment. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I've spoken five times there since then. Whoa. Um, Okay. The first time I spoke, it was on apps for autism. And we had a really great turnout. And I was really surprised because 
for people who, for your listeners who don't know what South by Southwest is, it's a great big festival in Austin and there's a technology part that's called interactive. And then there's a film portion and a music portion. Yeah, it, it, it always feels like the, like the rock star Ted to me. Yes. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's the best networking. So I was speaking on this panel and at this point I loved apps and I loved using apps for speech therapy and somebody was in the audience and he was a um, representative from an organization called ACT, the Association for Competitive Technology, and they also go by the App Association. So it's a trade association that does a lot of work on government policy around tech. So he was in the audience and I happened to mention an app that one of their members had developed and he came up and asked a question and I answered his question. And afterwards he said, hey, I wanna fly you to DC in three weeks to come to this meeting that we're having. So I was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> Turned out it was like 49 tech company CEOs and me, a speech pathologist. Wow. They, yeah, so they gave us like the, a one day education on tech policy and kind of what the government was doing at the time and you know what needed to be done and then we went and met with government officials the next day well over the years i go every year and now i get to talk to the ftc the fcc i've gone to the fda i've gone to the white house for meetings and I've so and so what do those folks consult you about then I'm able to talk about the human side of technology. So how technology actually affects people on a day-to-day -day basis and makes such a huge difference in our world. It's different than someone going in, coming in and going, well, I have this you know, $8 million business and this, these government regulations are hurting my business because of blah, blah, blah. Where I can go in and go, look, this little girl uses an iPhone as her voice. The only right. way she can say, I love you, is using right. this technology. That's kind of what I do. And then I also, now I do consulting um, in the tech world on accessibility issues, especially my love is cognitive accessibility, which is okay. kind of a, a forgotten form. And, 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 because when I think of that, I, I always joke that like my Google calendar is my cognitive prosthetic, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, uh -huh. is that the sort of accessibility we're talking about or? Exactly. And what I say is, so... 20% of the population actually has a cognitive deficit, but 100% of the population really has a cognitive deficit at one time or another during the day. You know, whether you're right. too tired or you haven't had coffee yet or you're sick. You know, there's just so many things that affect our brains that for a product to, a con cognitive accessibility really affects every single person. Sure. So I'm super passionate about that and also, you know, thinking about people on the autism spectrum and how they're able to interact with technology. One of my favorite quotes is that, um, and I, I'm going to misattribute it, but uh, for most of us, technology makes things easier, but for some people, technology makes things possible. Yeah. Um, I love that. So that's, that's fantastic work you're doing. I really love technology now and love the tech world. So I've been really pivoting in that direction. And as I was starting to pivot in that direction, that's when I decided to write a book on AAC and produce an online course. I found that so many of the families that I ran into when I was at conferences and even in my hometown, I live in Houston, Texas, they never, they didn't even know augmentative communication was a thing. You know, they had no right. idea it was available and the schools really aren't trying to, you know, they're not promoting it and there weren't other therapists 
who were offering it to them. So I decided to do this online course and book to kind of, it was going to be like my exit from the field, really. Okay. And, but what happened <laughs> is I continued building my tech consulting accessibility business and I decided I really, I, I actually really love augmentative communication. And actually, because of building the course, writing the book, I became more and more interested in the field. So I've kind of continued both. I right now have a, a private practice in Houston, and um, I have seven therapists working for me, and we do almost exclusively augmentative communication therapy. Um, on all different devices, depending on the child's need. Sure. I do consulting um, with school districts in Houston, as well as in, in the surrounding areas, and also with individual families on augmentative communication. What, what is the name of your book again, by the way? <laughs> the name of my book is Talking with Tech. Talking with Tech. <laughs> what, what, so many ways these great minds are thinking alike today. Yes, um, yes. So I just published my book. And I sent you um, information about it, I guess. And you were like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. I had this moment of like, we thought we were so clever. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, we're about to release this podcast with the same name. And I was like, oh, no problem. <laughs> yeah. So like, well, I don't care. Uh, we, by, by making that statement, you are releasing all indemnity to the, <laughs> I was like, hopefully it'll help my book sales. We're happy to, to be sharing so many of the same messages, the, uh, yeah. you know, and then you do a podcast too. And now the podcast is, is this through Easter seals? No, I, no. All okay. of this is on my own. So my podcast is called your app lady. Oh yes, of course, sir. I was thinking of one that I, I saw when I was, I was Oh, well, the, um, Easter Seals does, Bridging Apps does a little segment, but my podcast is called Your App Lady, and it is not, I, I of course talk about issues of accessibility and disability, but it's mostly aimed for people between the ages of 40 and 60 who have smartphones and they have tablets, and they really wish they would get a lot of use out of those devices, but they're not really using them to their full potential. Right. So that's my target audience. So Great. I do a little tech news, a app review, and a tech tip. And it's really short. So it's usually about 10 minutes, except if I interview someone, then it's longer. But it's very much just getting people feeling more comfortable with technology. Great. That's, that's, I mean, that's, again, we, we share absolutely the same vision. I mean, that's one message we, we really constantly try to hammer home is that intervention with augmentative communication, for example, really is just language intervention. I mean, there are right. you know, complications, clearly. There's other considerations we have to think about often with that population, but um, it, it's, it really shouldn't be scary. I think it gets so much fun. Right, right. And it's just a tool, just like a pencil would be. Yep, it's not, exactly. It's, so I, you know, I, and I try to encourage other speech pathologists when I do an evaluation on a child and then recommend a device and then may send them back, you know, to the, the therapist they were seeing prior, I tell them just go on like you're doing therapy. Like it's, Yes, there may be some tweaks to it, but especially once you get a kid on a core word AAC user or interface, you're just building language like you would and doing language intervention like you would with a child who was using their voice to speak. Right. Well, I'm assuming that you also own like a time turner from from uh, Harry Potter because I don't know how you do <laughs> everything that you just said you did. Um, so you have, you know, you have the private practice, you have the My Apple Lady podcast, you have to work with Easter Seals, you have all the consulting work. Um, I mean, do you have for our listeners any time management tricks? <laughs> well, I, I do. So I've always been a really productive person. 
I, I'm, I'm actually kind of a fly by the seat of my pants, but I make good use of my time. And in the last year and a half, I have made really good use of my time. So if I'm in a quote unquote work mode, I will um, carve out like two hours and say, and I try to do this from 9.30 to 11.30 each morning because that is my best time of day as far as my brain function. Is it really? Mine's like PM, but the same hours. Yeah, I used to be like that. And as I've gotten older, I'm not, I'm not as good at night. So 9.30 to 11.30 is like my focus time. And I literally focus. And it's amazing what you can get done in two hours if you're not distracted by chatting with people, answering your phone, looking at emails, looking at Facebook, you know, all of those distractions. Right. And I can do get a ton done in just a couple of hours a day. In fact, I take a nap almost every single day. And then I do some more work in the afternoon, but it's not as focused that's when I, you know, do the things that I can do without really focusing. Sure. Um, but as far as any writing goes or anything like that, I do it in that two hour period. Well, so you're then, saying you do this all in two hours. Okay. I'm th- This is over. I'm hanging up. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I do write in the evening as well after everyone else in my house goes to sleep. But I have teenagers and so sometimes they're up really, really late. <laughs> So they, they, you know, yeah, they'll start keeping you up. I get it. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's impressive. Um, I want to back up for one question because it was something we're asked often by our listeners is if they want to learn more about AAC, because as you know, there's not a ton of education out there and not every programmer, in fact, probably not even half of programs um, have an AAC program, whether it's worth going back and doing more certifications or getting involved with other organizations. What do you think? I mean, you're somebody who's done some of these uh, these programs. Well, I like doing certifications for my own benefit. Yeah, learning for learning's sake. Oh my gosh. Yes, exactly. okay. Exactly. <laughs> right. Sure. I think one of the problems in our field is that we are really not monetarily rewarded for additional education or certification. Right. And, and I think if we were, maybe it would spur more people on to do more. Conti- I mean, we have to do our continuing ed, but it's not like if you're an augmentative communication expert, the insurance is paying you more. Right. Um, so I enjoy doing the certification programs. The DIR floor time was incredible and really changed really the way I interact with all people, not just my patients. I haven't done any certification in, you know, any formal certification in augmentative communication. I have looked at some of the AT stuff. Um, some of the AT certifications, sure. and I ultimately decided that it probably wasn't going to benefit me, but I love to learn. So I'm like constantly reading. I actually, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Yeah, so that's deal. another way I get a lot done is anything I have to listen to or read. I do that in the car. Get another that. reason to listen to podcasts, right? People. Yeah. And podcasts. But yeah. That's That's, that's great. And that's something I, I always try to hammer hope for people is it's, it would be nice, right? If somebody could get a certification and see like a tangible financial benefit in the schools, but you right. will see a benefit in, you know, the, the students you serve or the clients you serve. And I, I think that the people that listen to podcasts like this, you know, during the summer probably understand that. Right. The folks that are listening freaking out in December that are, are a little bit more concerned about their CEU hours or whatever it might be. Well, and I I say you don't get a financial benefit. I guess you do. I mean, you, I I think people who do additional certifications, do additional education in general, have a benefit as far as in hiring decisions. You know, you're going to be more impressive. You might get a better job. 
maybe you'll get this a job in the school district making the same amount, but you'll have a more desirable caseload or be able to do some of these things like work on an, an AT or AAC team versus working on articulation at the elementary school. Right. You, you know, you have a large, pretty specialized private practice. How do you select your SLPs? Like what would stand out to you if somebody's looking to get a job, you know, working for a clinic like that? Um, um, go ahead. I typically hire people who, well, I, what I started doing when I first started hiring people to work under me is I hired assistants. So in Texas, we can have bachelor's level therapists as SLP assistants. And I did that very strategically because I wanted to hire people that I could train and had to do it, it the way I wanted it done. Right. Okay. So I didn't want anybody like thinking for themselves too much, you know, <laughs> it's like, I want it done my way. Like, you know, don't try to reinvent the wheel. This is, this is how this patient is, you know, making great progress. I wanted to go forward with that, which makes me sound super controlling, but I really am not that controlling, but I wanted to be able to keep my brand intact for lack of a better word. So I hired bachelor's level people. Well, many of them have been in grad school while they worked for me. And, and so now the SLPs I have working for me um, are all people that I actually trained. One of them, I was her CFY supervisor and then others I've have worked for me as an assistant. And then I still use bachelor's level people as well. Um, and it's worked out great for me because I do, I hire on personality and their ability to be flexible and learn. And then I train them in augmentative communication. And then obviously I'm supervising them as well. So I have a lot of communication with them. Got it. Okay. So you, you built your own workforce too, which, and I can, uh, you know, as I said, I have a history, um, you know, running a clinic and I can definitely relate with that, especially when it comes to AAC, like even very seasoned clinicians, right. you know, you, there's still a fair amount of training involved. And, right, and I would, right. I would imagine that's an encouraging message for new grads, right? Is that they don't need to know everything right away. Right. And I, I actually think it's a benefit not to know everything because as you, you know, not to feel like you know everything because you need to be open and learning and, and constantly being able to make changes. None of the kids we work with are the same. So it's really every child you, you meet, you are learning something from them that you kind of kind of add to your repertoire. Right. Yeah. I get, I get worried about the people that say they know everything. Right. Um, running a clinic with seven people sounds daunting to begin with. You know, I, I think if you usually, if you draw the Venn diagram of the overlap between like business people and SLPs, the overlap is like zero. Like, <laughs> is, is yes. this something that you've always been inclined to do or have you sought out extra help? No, 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 I was not inclined to do it. I definitely sought help. I have a great administrative assistant who helps me a lot. I have, and I've also taken classes, online business classes, and I use a, um, a mentor or a, a business coach. So, yeah. And I think what I suggest that people who are trying to run a practice, I think what we tend to do as speech pathologists, or I know this is what I tended to do, is I just kind of like the business part was just totally aside. It was not like that was not my focus. I never had to market or any of that kind of thing with my therapy company. And then when I started doing the tech consulting, I was thrown into a whole different world. And that's when I also started thinking about doing some consulting outside of our speech therapy realm 
is when I started really getting my business side of my speech therapy company under control as well. Okay. But so it's been a lot of learning. I, I've spent a significant amount of money getting coaching in that area, but I think it has paid off in, yeah. in, in my skill. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think, a good message for people to hear is that it's like, don't be ashamed to go seek that help. Not everybody knows everything. Very different right. intelligences. And there's very often, in, at least, you know, in, in my city, Portland, Oregon, like there are a lot of, there's even nonprofit services that'll help small business owners. Yes. Um, I think in most cities, there's a like small business administration. Now I can't think of what they're called. In Houston, it's the, it's through the University of Houston. They have a small business um program where you can go and I've done some of those. You can go and learn about LinkedIn or learn about, you know, your financial statements and all of that kind of thing that I definitely did not learn that in grad school. Yeah. I don't, I, that would be, that would actually be not a bad elective though. Like some sort of, some sort a of business, business class. Uh, it, be, it could be like a different track. There could be the, you know, the, the, the medical based, the school based, maybe they can have an IEP elective and then, um, mm -hmm. and then business. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to uh, dig into the, the book a little bit just because we, we have a common name. I mean, this is just yes. such an interesting <laughs> fact. And, and so I, I, I obviously I, I was on a plane and, um, and well, I would have read it anyway, but I happened to be on a plane when I was reading it and I enjoyed it very much. There's a few things I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about just from a, a methodological standpoint, because you do have so much experience. Um, and one of the things you said that is interesting now in the context of like the core language debate is, is the idea of starting small. How do you so, deal with that? Mm -hmm. Well, let me start with, I wrote the book for parents, really thinking about parents. Sure. I think it's very helpful for, for speech pathologists as well and educators um, who are just kind of starting out with augmentative communication. But that is, that's kind of like the basis of it. So I totally believe in core words and core vocabulary. Sure. But what I've seen in my career is I've seen many children, quote unquote, fail, which really means their community failed. It's usually not the child because the family and the school personnel were overwhelmed with the device. So what I started doing, and it seems to go against the idea of core word is I, I started to start small. And what I mean by that is giving them just a few icons. Now I don't do this with everyone. There are definitely kids who come to me, adults who come to me who have literally never seen an augmentative communication device, puts anything in front of them, literally, and they're able to communicate in full sentences. <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness, you haven't had it. Uh, I know, right? Is It's amazing when that happens. Yep. I know, it's like, you are so excited and so deeply depressed yeah. <laughs> all at the same time. Um, but frequently I have those kids who come in and they, you know, a typical profile would be a six-year-old with CP who is completely nonverbal, who has limited ability for access and their IQ measures at a 40. Well, we know their IQ is not a 40, but that's what the parents have been told. Right, because the test can't assess what the right you, right, sure. Right, so then someone puts someone, you know, has some, you know, so, so they come in and they're like, yeah, we tried Proloquo to go, but it didn't work. They, he, he couldn't do it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, how did it look? And invariably they say, it was really confusing because there were so many pictures and he couldn't choose one and it was too much. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so I started with this starting small. And the idea behind starting small is to give the child, the family, and the school very quick success. 
and then extremely quickly adding the entire core word vocabulary, but doing something where the child can get that idea of I ask for a cookie and I got a cookie and get them hooked on this idea of communication. Because frequently what I've seen in patients who have come to me in that kind of scenario is they don't understand the power of communication at all. Right. And then the family's overwhelmed and everybody is just like, oh, can't do it, give up, put it on the shelf. And we're, you know, my child is just doesn't have the ability to communicate. So I started with this starting small idea. I quickly build it up. And it's something though that has to be extremely managed because what I don't do is start small and then send them off and never see them again. Because then what happens is then they have four icons for the rest of their life right, <laughs> on their device. <laughs> so, um, but I'm glad you asked that question because I think I'm going to go back and reword that chapter a little bit. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I didn't mean to be challenging on it at all. It's just is interesting uh, because I've, I've been hearing so much of the opposite recently. Right. Um, no, I'm glad you did because like I just said, like, you know, I'm like, okay, maybe I didn't get that point across that you need to then quickly move to core word. So I, I think I'm going to go back and reword that. And it's, I use um, Amazon and create space. So I'm easily able to edit and then all the future copies will have it a little bit different. So, yeah, so yeah, how, how do you find time to write a book? Come on, geez. I wish I had time to write a book. <laughs> What? Two hours at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> you, what you spoke to, I guess we would call at least uh, in some sense errorless learning, right? Like giving them the right, right. With this exactly. right away. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I was also picturing in my head, I wasn't sure if um, there was an element of like hiding icons and, and that sort of thing. But then with Proloquo, that wouldn't be the case. Right, right. And so I wrote the book before the progressive language came out. Got it. Okay. So since the progressive language has come out, I've also done it a little bit differently, especially with kids who do have relatively good fine motor skills and, you know, and are able to target an icon. I have started using progressive language, which is just unbelievable because it kind of does that for you. Um, It kind of lets you start small on its own. Um, So I've been doing that. What I was going to say is, too, that a lot of the kids that I see, because they, I I get a lot of kids with CP or rep syndrome, and some of them don't even have the idea of cause and effect. They don't have that concept because, not because intellectually they don't have it, but because they literally have never been able to use their body to cause an effect. So they don't have that whole concept. And that's something that's really, really important. Um, I don't consider it a precursor, but I do consider it a skill to work on alongside the implementation of augmentative communication. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I've made the argument in the past, and maybe I'm wrong, but that causing changes in our environment is one of the fundamental points of communication and that it is hard to, right, to right. start to understand. I mean, I've, I've been in that boat with, um, with students where we're just, we're just working on turning on the light with the Big Mac switch for quite a while, you know, before right. we get into functional communication. Right. Um, and- you know, eye gaze obviously is a you know oh, yes. a, a whole other ball game, but that the physical training of the eyes and eye gaze is also super important. It, it's exhausting, and if yes. those of you listening, if you have not sat down and spent time with an eye gaze device and tried to compose a message, I mean, it, I can I, I I lose my steam after about five minutes. You know, let alone someone who yeah. already is dyskinetic and or has like chorea, like like a Rett syndrome. You know, where I mean, obviously things are getting a little bit better. The the bars are detecting better than the 
it used to be. But It is better. I, I couldn't even do it um, five years ago. And I have a corneal dystrophy, so my eyes, the reflection off my eyes is, is, is different anyway. And yeah, I can last about two minutes doing eye gaze myself. Um, so I, I always talk about it as it's like building a muscle, you know, oh, yeah. it's like, it's like learning to lift weights and increasing the weights. It's, you know, so obviously with eye gaze, there's a lot more of the component of just learning cause and effect, and then just purely learning how to activate the device and building those muscles. So that actually leads me into an interesting question too, that it goes back to the book somewhat. I mean, one thing that we do, cause I work a lot with eye gaze also, which, and for those of you listening out there who don't, it's not that intimidating. I swear <laughs> these kids are actually adorable. There is nobody in the world who can give you a stink eye, like a girl with red. Let me tell you, Oh yes. um, the personality <laughs> is, is rich. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing we do a lot with, with eye gaze machines is use these initial games, like look to learn for, to teach cause and effect, right? And, uh, right. and these sorts of things. And yet when we're working with kids learning on tablet devices, it's very much culturally verboten to have anything but the communication device on it. And I, I, I saw you wrote in the book that tablets can also be used for, for training motor skills and these other things. How do you feel in the light of that current debate? I like for the child to have two different tablets. Yeah, okay. Mm. So I strongly encourage two different tablets. And really now I almost insist on it because if you're using the same tablet to talk and play, when you're playing, you can't talk. So right. I, I find it very important to have two tablets. And now tablets are so inexpensive. You know, you can get, you need your iPad for your Proloquo, but you can get an Amazon Fire tablet for you know, 50 bucks. Yep. Or 40 so, if, you're, if you're okay with the ads, I think. is. The, right. <laughs> but yeah, so, tablets are becoming so much less expensive. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Right. So I, I really like um, having two, two different tablets. We have many kids in our practice who have two full-size iPads and they're in different cases. And no matter what that child's IQ has tested out to be in the past, they know exactly which one they're talking with and which one they're playing. So I haven't yep. really had a problem really with any of them. I mean, we use guided access. So their talking tablet is always stuck on their app or they're using a Toby device or a PRC device. And then they have a tablet or an iPad for fun. Right. And in the schools, I've also started insisting when I go into um, consult with school districts, that they do the same thing, that their iPad that they're using or their device they're using for communication is not the same one that they're using for educational apps. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear you say that. I mean, it's tough. And obviously, like, I don't want to come down, like, obviously not. In, in not every situation in the world can people afford two different tablets. But right, it, is, it right. is interesting, the you know, that we, we sort of have to resort to that with the eye gaze situation at this point. But what they, it'll change over time. Um, yes, yes. Hopefully not in not too, too much longer. So what you just said about guided, guided access and these other tools that are built into the OS, I just want to say to those of you listening, do check out the show notes uh, here. We will have a link um, to Betsy Stuff, uh, as well as you can go to tech.speechscience.org. I noticed you have a lot of really good resources about guided access. In fact, even in the book, you discuss it, and that's like a totally underused thing. So. Yes. Um, so I wanted to back up on and just maybe sort of end on, on one comment here, which I thought was really poignant and um, really related to, uh, I guess, the experiences of a lot of families and how there's kind of a hierarchy of needs when you have a new diagnosis. And you make this comment that um, AAC can be like a marathon, right? That it may not always be the right time to start. Yes. Um, that's, 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 tough. that's tough for me to swallow as an SLP, but I also totally get it. I've seen it. 
Like, how, what what motivated you to to make that statement? Well, what motivated me was I was thinking about the Couch to Five K app, where you go from laying on the couch to running a five k, and. Yeah. So if I went up to somebody and said, hey, I'm going to run a marathon and I'm not really an athletic person at all, they yeah. would never say to me, no, Betsy, you can't do that. Are you crazy? You're never going to be able to succeed at that. Nobody would ever say that to me, right? They might say, you better do a lot of training <laughs> or, you know, whatever, but they're not going to say, oh no, that's impossible. You're never doing that. Uh, my friends and, might say that, but that's, that's, you have good friends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I started thinking about the couch to 5k and the app and that process. And I started thinking, you know, augmentative communication is just like that. So you have to, you have to train and you have to be ready for it and you have to be in the right frame of mind for it. And you have to be able, you have to be dedicated to it. And then you have to practice, 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 practice. You're not going to go from laying on your couch one day to running a 5K the next day. It takes a lot of time and practice and training. And I feel like augmentative communication is the same way. Um, also, as a mom of a child with special needs, so I have, I have two kids. I have Sam, who's 14, and I have Henry, who's 20. And Henry has a neurometabolic disorder and severe intractable epilepsy and dysautonomia and is in the hospital a lot. I get a lot of work done there, too, in the hospital. As a mom of a child with special needs, I think I'm very aware of the fact that you can't fight every single battle all of the time. And there may be a time when your child's health is so fragile that you don't, you cannot put all your eggs in the augmentative communication basket. And I just wanted to give families grace and make them feel like they can give themselves grace when it's not the right time for them to do this. Great. And I, I was... I admit I was kind of leading into, I was hoping you'd say something along those lines. I think, I think it's a really important message. There's uh, not to be emotional about it myself, but it is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really challenging time, especially at the beginning stages. Yes. And so it, much it, going on. And it is also important for them to realize, you know, I have families that I've worked on and off with for five, six years on augmentative communication. And I have one, they decided a couple of years ago that they really, really needed to do intensive feeding and they couldn't do both. And I was like, that's fine. You know, just let me know when you're ready to start up again. And mom contacted me a couple of months ago and was like, okay, this is what we've got to do now. And I, I think sometimes, you know, I, I feel like the families need to know that even if they try and they end up not being able to make it a priority that they can always go back to augmentative communication and, yep. and get started with it when it, when it, it can be a priority. And when they can't, when they do have the energy to get everybody on board, because it's not easy. So I have a, I have a plaque on my desk that says, I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm telling you it's worth it. Yes. I like that. <laughs> That's good. Well, and yeah, it goes back to this theme that seems to always come up in our work, which is this idea that perfect is the enemy of good, right? That yes. Well, that's another way I get a lot of stuff done. Done is better than perfect. Oh yeah. I'm still, I'm still working. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, but I will, those of you who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure I made a hundred mistakes. So, um, well, my, one of my employees, um, she was, talking about something having to do with augmentative communication. And I was like, you've got to let go of the perfectionism because it's never going to be perfect. It's never, you know, and she goes, 
Yeah, Betsy, I'm trying to learn that from you because you do a really good job. Oh, <laughs> sassy. And I was like, is that a compliment or an insult? <laughs> but well, I have really, I have very good relationships with my employees. So I was going to say that's usually a good sign of a, a sign of a good relationship. Well, I, I guess kind of on that note, in closing, um, you know, a lot of our listeners out there are people that are wanting to learn more about AAC. Some of them are students, some of them are, are seasoned, but is there any sort of like final lesson or message you'd like to leave them with? I, I just think the idea that it's a tool and it's something that you can play around with and just keep trying to learn about it and don't be intimidated. I love the, but don't be intimidated. Absolutely too. And it's okay yeah. to play with it. Take it home, babble with it, play with the device. Yes. Well, once again, thank you uh, for, for joining us so much. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. Betsy Furler, who is now not going to sue us about her book. Just kidding. Her <laughs> fantastic book, Talking with Tech, which brought us together. So I'm so glad that we've met. If you want to know more about Betsy, check out, uh, well, really any variety of different places. So communicationcircles.com bridgingapps.org uh, as well. But uh, please do check out our show notes because we'll have a link to those and more. We'll talk to you all next week. Well, that was a really wonderful interview with Betsy Furler. We were so excited to have her on and listen to all of her, her tips and tricks. Um, if you guys haven't already, please subscribe to us in iTunes. We would love to have a review. Tell us what you think. Um, and that way you're, you're updated every time we release a new episode. We mentioned it earlier, but we'd love to see you on Facebook. There have been lots of different posts and lots of different people asking questions. And so we'd love to see you there. And of course, we've challenged you to post your questions there so that we can all talk about them in a future episode. So please do that. Thank you guys so much. I'm Rachel Madel, joined with Chris Bouguet. We'll talk to you guys next week.